Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and today our topic is discipleship, and my guest is Charlie Self, who uh, runs an organization called Discipleship Dynamics. And Charlie is with us uh, via Skype from Brussels, Belgium, although I take it that's not where you live. Is that right, Charlie? Correct. I live in Silicon Valley in California and work full-time for the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary in Springfield, Missouri. Okay. Well, and well, that's already an interesting combination. Uh, um, uh, Charlie and I uh, uh, got connected through the Oikonomia Network of the Kern Family Foundation, which involves uh, our the center's commitment to uh, to faith and work. And in the midst of that, I became aware of something that Charlie has spent a lot of time on in relationship to discipleship. Uh, in the development of discussion of discipleship and really assessing discipleship, which is always a challenge for people. And uh, I thought this was so terrific that I invited him to come on and, and share what he's doing. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, first of all, uh, with the Assemblies of God, and then about discipleship dynamics and where that came from. Well, um, like you, I have the delight of training pastors and missionaries uh, Christian compassion workers and others serious about their discipleship and about ministry. I'm the professor of church history at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary and have the honor of also doing some teaching and yeah, missions, leadership, and this kind of thing. And that's how I came about to get connected with the Kern Family Foundation and our economy and network that we, we are part of, as well as the, the think tank that we visit every year called the Acton Institute. Mm-hmm. So this combination of the privilege of equipping others and getting acquainted with other uh, sisters and brothers that care deeply about whole life discipleship has sort of been the er- the arena that has produced some of these new materials that uh, we're both learning from. So, in discipleship dynamics, tell a little bit about about that, and and, and you might share a little bit about your colleague who, um, because it's an international operation that you've got going. Yes, it is. Well, we started with with the inspiration of the faith and work movement behind us and the need for further understanding of economics, that faith-work-economics integration. That kind of got us thinking, how do we take that integration and frame it within the larger crisis, frankly, of both American and Western Christian, even global, discipleship? what John Blanchard calls a surfeit of superficiality and a dearth of depth. How do we, how do we know what a mature disciple looks like? Uh, how are we measuring this? So we started with a small think tank at AGTS, um, and it was just some professors and spouses getting together to say, let's not talk about programs, let's not talk about just the disciplines, but what are the outcomes? What are the biblical outcomes of the person who loves God with all their being and loves their neighbor as themselves and is fulfilling the Great Commission. So that got us started with some of the outcomes and categories. And then we took this first thinking and we went to over 200 leaders across the country, both in and out of our denomination, to say, hey, are we on track here in the basic dimensions and basic outcomes that we're looking for? And I'll share more about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But we really have subjected it to some thoughtful men and women from different perspectives to make sure we're on track. 
with the aim of saying how do we measure progress so we can celebrate? How do we measure challenges so we can ameliorate? Hmm. Now, your colleague who works with you in this is – I'll let you finish the sentence. He's Dr. Johan Mostert. He is from, he is from South Africa, mm-hmm. and he has experience as a pastor, as a community psychologist, as a relief and development expert. Hmm. He was deeply involved in the Mandela, in the immediate post-apartheid era in South Africa in connecting, helping the church and state and welfare departments bring help to people and help stimulate enterprise. So he's been involved in this in a very ground-level perspective. I've also had experience as a business consultant as well as a pastor and a professor so we've, we brought our kind of our talents and experiences together to make sure that the everyday work of God's people is included in how we assess their discipleship. Now, we'll eventually uh, be displaying this thing that we're going to be talking about in the midst of the podcast, and, and the title, <laughs> I, th- I think, is called Five Dimensions and Forty Outcomes. I, I, yes. I'm, I'm not sure what else to, to call it, but it's a, it, it really is a wonderful uh, – chart layout that has um, five areas, um, spiritual formation, uh, personal wholeness, healthy relationships, vocational clarity, economics and work. Those are the five dimensions that you have divided uh, divided thinking about uh, measuring discipleship into. And then each one of those has a subcategory that you are labeling outcomes, which I take as a measurable um, yes. area. Is that right? Yes. They're, they're, in the assessment that the individual receives, they get a measurement for the five dimensions in general and each of the 40 outcomes in particular. They get both a percentile measurement and a descriptive uh, narrative measurement in what is a 13, 14-page report. And, and then I take it that there are materials that help to explain uh, these categories and, and what, what you're looking for, that kind of thing. And so I, I take it that there's an initial assessment and then a person who works with the program develops in the areas that the assessment shows they need, they need to give attention to. Is that correct? And one of the things that we've done is we really want to be a catalyst for discipleship rather than a competitor with discipleship curriculum. Mm -hmm. So this is a snapshot. This is an assessment tool. We're leaving it to the pastor, the elders, the local leaders of a church, the deans, the vice presidents, presidents of colleges, as to the exact way in which they do the discipling. What we want to do is give you a way of getting a snapshot, not only of individuals, but here's the wonderful thing. If you invite a hundred of your students to do this, if you create a group, you get the metadata or the summary data of the whole group Mm -hmm. on all 40 outcomes. So now you can target, as a pastor or teacher or mentor, you can now target your discipleship. Oh, wow, that's great. Well, let's talk about these categories. I mean, some of them will be, I think, relatively transparent and are part of, I think, common discussions on discipleship, and then I suspect others of them, people will go, ooh, I never thought about that as part of the equation. So um, so uh, let, let's go kind of work through these one at a time. Spiritual formation obviously is at the core, and, and you already in summarizing this uh, suggested that that really what you're doing is you're building this around the, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself is kind of thinking about it in a, in a core kind of way. Am I, am I reading that right? 
within the larger mission of God and his assignment to the church to make disciples of all nations, Jesus told us what the first and greatest commandment was, and that's provided the foundation. And then I'll explain the last two dimensions flowing from that, but you're absolutely correct. Okay. So let's start off with spiritual formation. What kinds of things are we looking at in that area? And uh, I mean, and you might, we, we probably pursue all of these in the same kind of way um, by thinking, that, well, that's no surprise. We always think about that when we think about discipleship. And then maybe this other category we don't try give quite as much attention to, but ought to. Well, I think, I mean, the eight dimensions are there. I think one of the things we asked the question was, what kind of actual actions as well as disciplines? In other words, there are actions to do, but there are outcomes. So, for example, we'll talk about the believer really being able to not just appreciate the Bible or read the Bible, but really understand how to apply the Bible, loving the Word of God in such a way they can apply the Bible to, to their life issues. Mm -hmm. So for each of the dimensions, we not only state them, but we explain them in one to two sentences. So when we say love the Word of God, we're talking about being able to not only read the Bible, but also apply it to areas of life. And so as someone assesses this, they may not feel like they know enough about the Word. This will help them dig a little bit deeper. Or when we talk about people praying without ceasing, mm -hmm. we're not dictating how and when and how much to pray, but rather that there's, there's an ongoing conversation with God that we hope in the context of their tradition, their local church and situation, that they'll carry on. I think there, there aren't a lot of surprises in the spiritual formation area. I think perhaps listening to the voice of God um, may be a little bit different for some, and we're not talking about hearing voices or spooky kinds of things, but rather that deep wellspring of the Holy Spirit actually illuminating and guiding Christians into the application of God's Word and really being aware when the Good Shepherd's speaking to them. So, 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 you, that. so you have categories like uh, enjoy fellowship in the local church, making sure that people are connected to other people. Uh, uh, you've already talked about um, learning the Word of God and, and, and hearing the voice of God, that kind of thing. Praying without ceasing is, is – there's one here on the end. I'm not sure I can entirely read it because uh, of the way my reproduction has come out, but it, it looks like it's um, – well, I can't – it looks like well, solitude. Oh, it's, it's cultivating, cultivating solitude. Cultivating solitude. Yeah. The ability to be alone with God and enjoy his personal presence, the ability to ponder and meditate his, on his great works. We originally put the word biblical meditation in there, and mm. we were afraid that people would misinterpret the word meditation. Yep, because that has managed to generate controversy. Well, and you're looking at a man who before his conversion was a practitioner of transcendental meditation. So I do know the difference between the biblical call to meditate in God's word and the ungodly call of other religions. Mm-hmm. So, so you really are looking for – the spiritual formation is a very rounded exercise, it seems to me, where there's both concern about how you develop in your walk, personal walk with God on the one hand, and, and then the other dimensions are the more corporate dimensions of fellowship and engagement and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's so important. Um, obviously, one's salvation rests with the grace of God and personal response of repentance and faith, but upon that response, you are incorporated into the body. And all through our assessment, we make it clear that discipleship is not a solo activity. 
that's done in consultation with your peers, with your friends, with your mentors, with your pastors. And uh, you'll find in all of our descriptions on the website and all the reports that are generated, what you'll find is this robust notion that you need to be in, in what we call affectionate accountability with other believers. Hmm. Uh, we, we haven't mentioned the website, so we probably should do that. And in fact, this chart is available on the website. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell people where the, where the website is? It's simply www.discipleshipdynamics, one word, lowercase, dot com. Okay. And you can get a full description of the assessment, even we're, we're improving it every day. So you can now even see part of a sample test and kind of get an idea of what happens be- if, before you plunge in and take it yourself. And there's also a blog on that site, is that correct, where you yes, discuss what's going on? We're blogging every week. We're um, we're pointing people toward the assessment, and then we're beginning. In fact, we're going to be asking you to do some writing for us in the coming months. <laughs> but what, actually, what we're doing with all forty outcomes, we're we're beginning to solicit from women and men the best three or four page kind of essays on these outcomes with references to materials and resources, because we really do want to be a catalyst you might say a godly broker of the best resources. What I find is we have starving Christians in the midst of plenty. Mm-hmm. All 40 of these outcomes, there are great books, videos, resources, and yet you need to see them together, I think, and then have your leaders help you gather the materials. It, it strikes me that what you're working on in that dimension is a little bit like what's been going on with the Theology of Works site and building a reference uh, yes location for issues of theology and work, only this is for discipleship. Absolutely correct, and we we expect that there will be others that build their own assessments and build their own resources, which we'd be happy to see. That's great. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Okay, well, uh, spiritual formation, uh, like I said, that's probably the, the, in some ways, the most transparent one. It is the first one on the list. You have them, uh, the way the chart lurks, of course, is that you have five kind of loops that one inside the other, with the first one being spiritual formation. It's kind of the, I don't know if it's the shell or whatever of, of this. I'm trying to describe something people will be seeing. But anyway, the second category is personal wholeness. Now, what are you after in general? And then, in what are some of the categories that we're dealing with there? Well, we, we've been inspired by the work of people like Peter Scazzaro and others that make the argument biblically that emotional and relational maturity and spiritual maturity cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. And so as one grows in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, one also becomes a more whole person and then ultimately better capable of getting along with others. 
And uh, Dr. Mostert is an expert in psychology. And so what we wanted to do was say, where does the Bible speak to what we talk about in terms of psychological wholeness? Hmm. And so this is, and we, what I'm really pleased to announce is that we had no anti-psychology pushback when they realized we asked the question, what does the Bible describe as someone we would call psychologically whole? And so we're not just taking a secular reference and finding a Bible verse, but asking the question of wholeness and trying, and there's, of course, there's much more than we've put down, but trying to come up with some things that are understandable. Now, it, what's interesting here is the leadoff when I think I'm reading this right, is humility. Is that right? Yes, it is. And uh, I often like to talk about the fact that people don't think about at the core of faith is actually a humility, that 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 when you are trusting God to provide something you recognize you cannot provide for yourself, that the very first steps of your walk of your faith are very much grounded in humility. Well, um, theolo Lutheran theologian Gerhard Ferdi, in his great little book, Justification, A Matter of Death and Life, says that the most humbling thing about the gospel of grace is the absolutely nothing that we contribute. Mm -hmm. It's of our arrogance of thinking that we make some kind of contribution other than, as Schaefer put it, the open hands of faith and receptivity. Mm -hmm. and so whether one is Calvinist or Arminian, uh, whatever you land on some of those areas, when it comes to the justifying grace of God and, and the steps of real Christian progress, um, God gives grace to the resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yeah. Uh, so, it's such a core, core element of, of the walk, um, and so it's, it's great to see it in a, in a leadoff position. Now, I'm not sure I can read this next one. Uh, it's something self-image. Is it uh, – Healthy self-image. Healthy self-image, self okay. You know, one of the things that um, in, in, a, in, a, in a Western culture filled to the brim with narcissism, Humility is the antidote to the narcissism that we face every day. On the other hand, we're also filled with so much dysfunction, rejection, abuse, the, the tragic consequences of sin that lead people to diminish who they're made to be in the image of God and who they're being remade to be in the image of Christ. Hmm. So we want people to be able to have a healthy self-appreciation for who they are, and that translates into a lot of, a lot of growth in other areas as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty important category. I, I, um, I'm getting ready to do some teaching on Colossians, and uh, the, thi the thing I love about the way Paul opens his letters, of course, is that when he addresses the communities, he always calls them saints. And I say, you know, Paul thinks about sainthood in a completely different way than we tend to think about it. You know, we think about saints kind of the old-fashioned way, you earn it. But, uh, but in Scripture, you're a saint uh, the moment you come to the Lord because of what it is that he's done. And thinking yourself as a saint is actually a pretty important part of, of your self-identity that Christ gives you. I agree. Every one of us wrestle with how we feel about ourselves for any number of reasons, our fallenness, our nurture, uh, various experiences in life. And I can't think of any more affirming statement than we were the joy set before Jesus as he goes to the cross, that, that as David Ekman puts it, that we are worth the blood of Christ. Hmm. And we are, and Richard Lovelace and his dynamics of spiritual life inspired us as well. That God does everything the reverse of every other religion. First, He calls us saints, places us in heavenly places, and then He invites us to voluntarily join Jesus in servanthood 
to the world and to others because we're secure, not in order to be secure. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, the whole the whole idea of being accepted and the gratitude that's supposed to come as a result of your experience of grace, etc., all that is extremely important. The next category, I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, some of these fascinating, is gratitude. Is that right? Yeah. To, to us, gratitude is the fruit of humility, mm-hmm. and that is you, you begin to cultivate a mindset, a cultivate verbally and, 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 and cognitively this understanding that all that we have is from the goodness of God. And, of course, this comes out of the exhortations of both the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, both the Psalter and Paul's epistles, for us to constantly be giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ for all that he's given to us. Now, the next one I can't I I, I can't read it all, but it looks like it's got dis, disruptive or something in there or am I missing that? It's uh manage or mature. Yes, I'll I'll give you it's okay. managing managing our negative emotions. Okay. And on a practical biblical level, you read a lot of Paul's writings in particular and it's talking about how we get along with others, but how it affects us internally. So we were very serious about exegeting and expounding those scriptures about bitterness, about rage, about anger, about various various things that can come just as a result of life, as a result of conflict. We're going to have negative emotions. You, you'd have to be dead not to have them. Mm-hmm. The question is, how are we stewarding those? And one of the things we want people to be able to do is to be able to manage what, what do I do when this emotion comes into my life or, or how do I regard some of these even long-term memories and issues that I have. And so that was, that was part and parcel of, you know, there are actual biblical ways to grow in that grace, to acknowledge, for instance, you know, my wife and I are in the midst of, of grieving the loss of her father right now. And he was a wonderful old man who died in the faith. But we're in that, that's not so much always negative, but it's a difficult moment. Mm-hmm. So we want to manage it well, give ourselves permission to feel and to grieve and to miss him, but also exhort ourselves to keep carrying on the legacy of his hard work and dedication. So, um, or the, the depth of, of anger I feel when I see another sex trafficking story or another terrorist bombing. Mm-hmm. How do we manage that? And so we really want to help people with that, whether it's very personal and daily or whether it's sort of global and a larger issue. You know, I, I think that one of the issues that, that we have is we, particularly when we think about uh, moving from life to the Bible, because oftentimes what we do when we teach is we go from the Bible to life, is managing the tensions of life in a fallen world. That, exactly. that, that you know, the cards that we end up being dealt that we don't necessarily expect or anticipate, uh, and, and then having to to cope with what it is that that we experience because of the disappointment or frustration or the effects of sin. There are just a wide variety of ways that it comes at us. And and part of spiritual maturity is is learning how to manage those those experiences as they come at us because they tend not to be announced. Uh, You know, they tend to just show up and, and boom, you've got to deal with them. Well, let me share an example that may be a really concrete one to help. That's helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other outcomes is forgiveness that's listed there, mm-hmm. and and forgiveness is not excusing the sin that's been committed against us, but it's making a choice to treat the other person as if they had not sinned against us, just as God in Christ has done that 
through the cross. Well, on a practical level, all of us are called to forgive and to manage these emotions well. The process by which those emotions uh, affect us more or less can be different. For example, my wife gave an illustration of how she and I respond to life. She goes, Charlie, something happens. You're like a pair of dockers that comes out of the dryer all pressed and ready to wear. <laughs> you get over stuff quickly. She goes, I'm like linen. I need a little more time to iron it out. <laughs> and then she laughs and goes, by the way, linen lasts a lot longer than dockers. But, <laughs> but her point there was, there's a, the, the Bible tells us both, and, and by the way, we work hard and, and believe that we're honoring God. So we both forgive and treat the other person well. We make the choices of agape the same. Mm-hmm. However, the internal processing of emotional experiences may be different. What the Bible's looking for is not hypocrisy, but it's also not, it's not describing or necessarily defining Christian maturity that everybody works things out the same way and in the same time, right. but rather that we are making those godly choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good. Uh, it's a good word. That's a great illustration. I have to remember that. I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm probably Dockers too. My wife's probably also linen as well. It reminds me of those conversations that you sometimes have about about temperature in the house. You know, is it warm in the house or not? Well, it depends on who's doing the asking and who's doing the answering. Um, great. Well, uh, let Let's move on to the third category. Uh, this is healthy relationships. So, so I take it that the difference. Probably should talk about the difference between some of these spiritual. Formation, looking at the at just the core ways in which you think about uh, relating to God and relating to others. Personal wholeness, wholeness is a is kind of an uh, uh, this may not be the right word, but a kind of introspective focus on who yeah. we are and how we're how we're engaging. And now the arrow is kind of moving out. Healthy relationships. How are we actually engaging with, and how do we engage with others around us? Is that is that the third category? Yeah, this is how do we love our neighbors? What's, okay. what's the evidence that we're loving our neighbors as ourselves and engaging? And one of the things we tried to do there was think both generally and specifically about the kinds of relationships that we have, because we all have the different kinds. We have relationships with authority. We have relationships in marriage. Mm-hmm. We have relationships that are friendships or professional. So we did our best to consider the different types we have. And so, and looking at this, I think this first one looks like: is it love? Is, is that beautifully and usefully, or am I am love I deeply and wisely? Love what? Love, love. Really, what it what it is is love wisely. Love wisely. Okay. So the idea here, in a general sense, is that the agape that we are to exercise needs to be exercised with wisdom. We want people to grow in learning how to lo- to love wisely and learning how to love with intelligence. Okay, and then the next one looks like it is the the forgiveness category. Is that is that right? That's a relational category. Right. The other thing we do there, for instance, in healthy relationships, is uh, we're going to include marriage in this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things marriage is also included in vocational clarity. And this is a good time to sort of link them. If you're single and you take this test. The questions on marriage don't count against your profile. They're, right. <laughs> they're knocked out, as okay. it were. Um, one of the theological uh, foundations of this is that both singleness and marriage are signposts of the coming kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Singleness is not deficiency. Marriage is not perfection. They are each an expression of the goodness of God. And That's... so we want to be really careful um, to not make historic mistakes, to make singleness superior, or the contemporary mistake of making marriage superior. But in either state, 
you're anticipating the reign of God. Yeah, we've just done a podcast on on singleness to to work on this because I actually think that dealing with singles is is, a, is something the church is generally fairly awkward at, uh, and yes. uh, and then and then secondly, the idea of affirming singleness and what it means to be single in our world where where sexuality is such a dominant category is a very, very important uh, 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 check on the way our culture tends to view these areas. Great. Um, let, uh, the next one, uh, I think, is, is it live in harmony? Yes, living in harmony with one another. Okay. And this, this is basically when the Bible exhorts us to uh, let the peace of Christ rule not only in our hearts and minds personally, but let it rule in the fellowship of the saints. The ability to get along with people. Mm-hmm. It's a very basic one. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, it, it, it's uh, extremely important in that regard. Um, I'm trying to see if there's another one in here that, that I can – the trouble is I've got a little printout here of what you've got, in it, and the, the outcomes are in really small prints, and, you know, my yeah. eyes aren't what they were. So. I have most of them memorized, so I can, certainly, <laughs> I can certainly help if you need a little help on those. Okay. Uh, is, there, is there one here that says – is it uh, – Oh, this one looks like it is about sexuality. Is that right? It's like it's called managing our sexuality. Okay. It's this this, and I want to let me take a moment on this one. Not okay. a long time, but this is the notion that um, single or married, we must steward our sexual drives and sexual expressions in a biblical fashion. Mm-hmm. So we take some time to explain that, and then in the questioning and in the outcome. This like the biblical teaching on sexuality is simple, hard but simple. You're celibate if you're single. You're faithful if you're married. But underneath that, then people are facing all kinds of things, and the Bible has tremendous resources to to enable us to walk in that holy calling. But we want people to be able to manage their thoughts, their attitudes, their actions in a healthy way. Okay, and then the one next to it looks like it has something to do. It, uh, I think it looks like it has something to do with the marginalized. Is that right? Yes, or something? this one is caring for the marginalized. Okay, one of the things we think is important, uh, based on the biblical concern for the poor, the biblical concern for the widow, the orphan, the biblical concern to reach out in Jesus' name to those that society does not always honor. Um, We think it's a biblical mandate that we are consciously looking to serve others that cannot return the favor. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I I mean, so important and and raised all through the Gospels in many passages, and of course James mentions it. It's it's literally – and of course uh, the Judeo – the Jewish roots of this in the Old Testament and in wisdom literature, et cetera, is strong. The concern of the prophets. This is a, this is an area I think that oftentimes uh, we we significantly underestimate. Well, I think it gets politicized. We think that caring for the marginalized means a certain tax policy or a certain welfare state or a certain kind of politics, and people can react different ways to that, Christians included. I've been around the world, so have you, so Christians have different political opinions. The Bible doesn't have a a diversity of opinion about whether we should care and care in action. I think John's first letter to me is the most brilliant synopsis. If you have the means to do something and neglect be- helping that person, how can you describe the love of God as being in you? Mm-hmm. 
There's, there's wisdom in how we do that. There's a sense of what means we do have, but he's really getting at the heart of the matter. Are we willing and are we able and willing to do something for the poor? Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well. Love well.